Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you, people, I'm very happy to have my guest today. I started, I bothered him, like, I think, like, six years ago, because I saw him respond, I believe, to a tweet of my friend Wendy Liebman. So I guess he knew Wendy Liebman, and then I said to him, hey, can you do my show? And that was six years ago, and the pandemic happened, and he gets busy, I get busy. It was a long time ago, and I left him alone, because I never badger guests. A lot of, any young podcasters, don't badger your guests. Give them, like... Six years, and you can go back to him. And my guest is a great actor. He's a Tony-nominated TV, movies. He does it all. It's Craig Berko. How you doing, Craig? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm sorry about that. You, you know, it, well, that confusion, which is it molecularly encoded in my DNA, I wouldn't be able to function without my store of confusion, I think. But um, I... I came ac- last night. I came across your most recent email, which I've had to switch to the decimal, the Dewey Decimal System, in order to, to keep the file of your emails alone. Um, because we've had this long correspondence, and uh, up until the last minute, I was sure that I had missed last Wednesday's podcast which I'm sure you would have alerted me to. You wouldn't have given me the cold shoulder, although after six years, that's well, no, certainly been my, that's been my experience. Yeah, but no, okay, you're also see, not a woman. The, this, this, we see, haven't dated as far as I know. The, Go the, ahead. The six years, though, was something, I sent you some messages on Twitter, and then you could say you could do it, and then we didn't. And like I said, we both get caught up, and I always tell people, you know, sometimes I tell a lot of actors, go, you need to get back to me. I'm like, well, I mean, a lot of podcasts, I go, well, because they're actors. They're auditioning. They're doing shows. They get busy. Their world doesn't revolve around us. And I just, the other day, I, was, I said, I'm going to take a shot in the dark. And I sent you a message on Twitter. And you said, let's do it. No, I'm glad you did. And I don't think I've ever, God, uh, unless it was like the white hate friendly forum or something, I, I don't think I've ever said no to... Uh, somebody who seemed to have an interesting podcast, you know, as long as they weren't saying, hey, we want to ask you all kinds of ridiculous questions you can't answer. But what, but whatever it was, I think it was the White Hate Friendly Forum was the only one that really... <laughs> and you know what it was? It was just... It was about, it was about one particular ex-girlfriend. It wasn't even the White Hate stuff, which I wasn't going to... I didn't want any part of that. I don't want any part of hate. Um, they said, well, well, and it became down to a, just a, uh, they, they wanted to talk about somebody they didn't want to. So I'll never talk to the white, a friendly forum. You can sign my name to that. They're, they're awful. And not just because it's about white hate, but, um, enough about the white, hate friendly forum. I, I actually up until the last minute was confused. And then I think the, um, Always a good buoy in the water for me is Wendy Liebman, because uh, a I'm a, I've always been a huge fan of of Wendy's comedy, and then I learned because my mother will, uh, in the middle of a conversation, drop these like buried in the lead comments, like oh you you that comic Wendy Liebman yeah I love her she's brilliant she's invented a way of embedding a secret sec- second punchline. In the first punchline, she's doing something I've never seen any other comic do. And uh, she said, yes, I went to camp with her mother. And I turned this. I was like, why would you just you don't mention that that you got. And that was that was minor pickings for my mom. My mom recently told me and this is recent. uh, 
you, I was looking for pictures of, of my grandfather, who uh, was a terrific guy, so it would be her father, who made and lost millions during the Depression, buying and selling buildings all over New York. So sometimes, you know, all my life we've driven around New York, went, that was your grandfather's, and it wasn't. That was your grandfather. No, he didn't even get that. No, he lost that one. So we would do that. And I, that's and then he opened a very successful business that he ran until he he uh, passed. What I didn't know was something she blurted it out a couple of years ago. She just I think we were watching some movie on TV and maybe there was like a big dance number during it. You know, your grandfather was married to a uh, uh, what? A, oh, now I'm forgetting the name of the, the uh, those showgirls. Uh, the Rockettes. No, no, no. We further back the the theater. Uh, can can you know with the, the can what? the can can or the flappers? Oh gosh, I can't believe it. I'll I'll remember I'll remember because Zigfield. Okay, your grandfather was married to a Zigfield girl. Well, I blew that one, but but I, I was like, what do you mean he was married to a Zigfield girl? I know of Nana. <laughs> she said, yeah, before Nana Francis. Uh, uh, who he chased into one of the buildings it happened, I think lived into one of the buildings that he owned and he chased her upstairs, asked her father for his daughter's number. And the, you know, that was my grandfather. So he was a gutsy guy, but he was married to this Zigfield girl. I said, what names, what? And she goes, Oh, I don't write. So I looked him up uh, and I found all this information that he had. My grandfather married a Zigfield girl and I, and her name is slipping my mind. If the if Zigfield slips my mind, it's only a matter of time before my mind slips itself. But, uh, she had made like a two reeler and what she was famous for, you know, she was like a bold name for like a week, uh, in like the New York Herald. And it mentioned, uh, batch out and about bachelor, Philip distillator. Cause that was his last name, which was crazy. Philip distillator, and it's like Ramona Morell. I think it's Ramona Morell. That was it. Uh, Ramona Morell, who was who was known, her her uh, she was famous for being uh, accident prone and constantly hurting herself backstage. And my grandfather was like, "That's the girl for me." So uh, they got married, and uh, my grandfather found out while right after they got married that she had forgotten to unmarry the guy before or mention him. And uh, so at the end of this article, I realized my grandfather, so this would have been in like the probably the late 30s, I guess, mid to late 30s, went to court with the previous husband they met, decided to go to court and sue the wife for annulment together. I, I don't know that it was the first, it was the first by annulment I'd ever heard of, you know. But they did. That's what my grandfather did. And I was like, Mom, these stories about buildings, you got to pepper them with something to keep us awake. This is that's really interesting. A Zigfield girl. So cut to me. I'm with my then girlfriend. We're walking into a party at the Zigfield Theater has been converted into like this convention center party thing. It was some big thing for CNN. I don't remember what it was. But we're walking in and they have all these girls dressed like flappers at the door. And I went, I just found out yesterday my grandfather was married to a Zigfield girl. Of course, thinking this would be interesting 
to a millennial <laughs> who's just wearing whatever they told her to put on it. She just looked at me like, uh-huh. He just walked here if you want to check your coat. And I was like, no one cares. It's so interesting to me. Even mom didn't, doesn't, it seemed not to resonate. Oh, that's right. He married a Zigfield girl. I can't wait to find out else, what else well, you, has gone on. You might find out that's where your acting lineage comes from. Where where does your acting lineages come from? God, I hope not. So my, certainly my accident proneness. But uh, I, as far as I know, I don't have anything to do physically with Mar Ramona Morell, something like that. Uh, she made one, two reeler, I think, or something like that. And I don't know what happened to that guy. But uh, where does my my acting come from? Yeah, where is, 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 were your parents were, you, were your parents into theater, or what got you yes. into theater? Uh, in all in all seriousness, uh, my both my father and my mother. But my mother was the president of our local. I grew up in Rye, New York, so of course, my mother was the president of the Harrison Players, couple towns over. Um. And and so I grew up my first I think my first experience uh, auditioning was auditioning for the Harrison Players production of Gypsy. And uh, I I think they had to audition too. like my mother and father, like my father didn't wasn't in that one. I think he they put him in as like a floor sweeper between scenes. He would get laughs or something. But my mother played Mazeppa in gypsy which was the i don't know if you're familiar with musicals but there's like there's a song called gotta have a gimmick and it's just three strippers singing um uh you gotta have a gimmick to gypsy rose lee young gypsy rose lee as she's coming up the ranks and my mother's was a trumpet and she was supposed to talk like this she always sounded like jack klugman that character she goes you bump it with the trumpet my mother would blow the trumpet so i i a friend of mine sent me a picture that he found from the Harrison Players archive of, of my mother in like this bikini suit with a trumpet and this Viking hat. Uh, so, and I, and I remember it like I, like anybody would remember like a sweet memory of their mom. It's just that my mother happens to be dressed like a sadomasochist, you know, lower Chelsea, lower Chelsea, you know, some basement you don't want to know about, uh, uh, employee. And, and uh, and I do remember she was really really hilarious. She she played a, a lot of those parts, and I watched that. So I do think what is actually encoded it, it, into my DNA, you know, with any excess room, is uh, uh, memories of growing up watching my parents lead. Uh, doctors and lawyers people who'd already done a full day's work but loved being around the theater and the idea of putting on a show so much that they would gather for three hours at the end of the day put in a rehearsal and then memorize the whole lines they did the whole show and i had no concept of what was good what wasn't good i just know that my exposure to all of the classics cabaret fiddler on the roof gypsy the music man uh I think Oklahoma. I think I saw basically all of the classics uh, through community theater, and I can call up any second the smell of backstage, which was really just classrooms at night. So uh, it was all happening in a school, um, and there's some of the happiest memories of my life. And to this day, I mean, I just did a play 
uh, on Broadway called uh, Girl from the North Country. Beautiful, beautiful, independent film of a Broadway play. It's um, very, uh, very dark. Uh, it's p- just a real a, a piece of cunning genius that I couldn't. It, I, I don't know that I could. It, it was um, it wasn't confusing, but it was it was mysterious. It seemed to have no bottom. And it was written by Connor McPherson, and the music was by uh, uh, Bob Dylan, and the cast was fantastic. And um, every day I went backstage, um, I felt like I was backstage at that high school. There's that never leaves me. It doesn't matter where I am, what history the theater or the play has, who I'm working with. I remember Big Gene talking body laughing with him and all of the other people um and and nailing together the the sets that he would then go be a chorus guy in or you know maybe play one of the supporting roles and and uh it was a it was it, it's something i still carry with me so i'm never the guy even it, no matter what my position is i had this natural sense of how to be part of an ensemble i craved it i've been running back towards that experience i think my entire life well you know it's you know you mentioned being young and seeing the music man so what was it actually like when you got to be in the music man on broadway that must have just been an experience that you said well, wait a second. I saw this when I was a kid, and now I'm on Broadway doing it. How did that part come about for you? How did you get that part, and, and what was it like? Because I've heard people say, Broadway's great, but the backstage, and the dressing rooms aren't decorated. It's like they're all buildings. And, but Well, that is true. You know, first of all, I, I mean, historically, people, have, human beings have been growing in size incrementally. I think the first, I, I, I might be wrong, but wasn't the first, uh, Continental Congress, the average height was 4.9 feet. Nobody lived that long. I think they all died by the time they were 16. Benjamin Franklin was only 13 years old. He was considered elderly at that now. Uh, um, I think, I think peop, when these theaters were built, a lot of them were built at the turn of the century, even before some of the ones I've been in. And you really do get the sense, I don't think people would have been unafraid of me just if i walk in the door because i'm a big guy i'm six four and this this room is clearly not made for somebody who's six four unless they're really trying to you know curve your back uh things you know a lot of them are remodeled and they're very nice backstage but you can see signs especially because i never if i'm in a show i know it's only a matter of time before i'm running downstairs and i hit my head and they'll put signs up watch your head and like an idiot, I'm joking. That's literally impossible. It doesn't help. It's the stupidest sentence in the English language. Can't watch your head. Usually leads to exactly what it is they're hope, hoping I'll, I'll avoid. Um, uh, doing but doing some, that physically backstage, I, would, I didn't expect anything at the Music Man. And I was all for, um, because I, you know, at that point, I was, yeah, I was around 36 so I had already logged about uh, a little more than 10 years in the business. I'd been doing it, but I hadn't done a Broadway show. I felt always ever since a kid because I grew up in New York and because of the history that I was telling you about. And the fact that my parents, you know, did, like going to Broadway was a big deal. It was important to see Broadway shows. 
and um and I knew the music man cold by the time I was eight because I performed it for my nanas when they would come over. But um, that's not the same thing as um, memorizing the lines, uh, connecting, you know, making sense of this uh, iconic character that has to live and breathe on stage and has to want what it is that he wants very clearly or the audience won't, you know, but there's also a reason this play is done frequently uh, throughout the country and the world, I would guess, in high schools, because it's easy enough for uh, a child to to understand those things. I think being a little bit older, I think here's the thing that, that, that blew me away about the music man was that if I had seen, if somebody had shown me this without familiarity, without being as familiar as I was, if somebody had showed me the script and the, and and the you know the songs uh i probably would have gone this is ridiculous i don't want any part of it because it just looked like a skeleton it's very sparse everything that meredith wilson wrote was all of this wonderful patter and rhythm the sense of rhythm that echoed the americana of the time in the sweetest way uh, it was all in his head and so and and it was you know written uh for, for you know, so that musicians can understand it, but as a human being reading it, it just didn't even it did barely resembled a script, and the jokes were kind of corny and clunky. But there was a note at the beginning that says, "This is a Valentine." I don't remember what he says after that, but the, I do remember Susan Stroman, who directed it, who, who was incredible, of course. Uh, she she read the note to us and said, "This is so important." that it's worth hanging outside your dressing room door, inside your dressing room door, sewing inside your costume. Because the minute we make fun of these people and wink to the audience, the whole show will might as well just like a balloon right out the window. It can't, that's the only thing you have to do. It's like Tinkerbell coming in and trying to commit to, you know, who here believes in Peter Pan? If you don't believe in the music man, it will die. And that's why I think it is so popular and and healthy for kids to be doing it is it promotes in very cagey ways the best of us. It reveals very cagey ways the worst of us. And um, and it celebrates what is essentially still just as much of an idea as the play itself, which is America. It's something we have to keep playing and trying to discover or it falls apart. It's unlike any other country. And this was unlike any other play. It was a completely new experience. And and having been as prepared as I felt for it, because really I did know all the songs by the time I was eight, you know. Uh, I had his rhythms down, never even once considered, well, altering the rhythms. I go, but you're not doing Beatlemania. There's no way to imitate Robert Preston and do it in front of a sophisticated Broadway audience and not come off like a moron. If I didn't connect with the beautiful, and thank God for her, Bless her precious heart. May it rest in peace. Rebecca Luker, my first Broadway leading lady. God bless whatever it is I did to her feet because she led every dance, which is another it's another Broadway secret. If it's a straight guy, the woman's leading the dance. And God bless her feet. I wish I there should have been pictures every day posted in the New York Post of her feet because they had to be thin like by the time I got through with them. But she led every dance. and She was so good. Oh. And, and I realized, oh, the whole idea of the play 
is that if these two characters, I'm assuming some familiarity, your audience has some familiarity with the play, but it's a traveling salesman comes through a town. He's got his routine. He sells instruments that he knows nothing about and uniforms to the townspeople. And then before they arrive and unpack it and realize he hasn't taught them how to use any of these instruments and that they've been taken, he's on to the next town and they can't get a hold of him. He's really good. But in this town, there happens to be the beautiful Marion the Librarian, local school teacher, who he's first just takes note of and he's scared of needs to keep her distance, but slowly falls in love with her and his family. And, you know, at the end, while they're chasing him out of town on a rail, literally, he um, he decides uh, if this is dying, I don't want to live. And he he stays. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, heartbreakingly beautiful story. And and the only time you'll never watch the music man and go, it had like seven endings. Because as soon as he decides to say, curtain goes down. There's not even a song. <laughs> He's tied to the post. They're going to tar and feather him. And then you realize, I think I'll stay. Curtain's already coming down. But I think I'll stay. Boom. You're on the, you're on the parkway on your way home. It's so <laughs> clever, so brilliant, so moving. And um, so it's hard for me still to answer what was it like. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced and unlike anything I ever expected. I can tell you, and I think I've told this story before, but I was this close to, believe it or not, saying, I'm not going to do it. And I had a million reasons not to do it. Some I could make them sound intelligent and say, you know, uh, I'm working on a film career. I got a film, you know, what, what do I need to go do the same thing? I don't want to, you know, I got some momentum. I don't want to stop myself for a, didn't matter at all to me. You know, the music man was like, I almost couldn't believe it was happening. They had a colossal fear of, they haven't done this play since 1963. Started in like 1959. Same man played the role until he physically just couldn't anymore. <laughs> they put some other guys in, Burt Parks or whatever, that had a respectable life afterwards. But really it was all about Robert Preston. And I just thought, there's, you know, there's three seconds somebody offers you a part. They're the greatest three seconds in an actor's life. But you got to savor them. Because after three seconds, all of your thoughts come in. Some of them make sense. Like, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? You? They had no one. It's been no one. No one has done it. And But you're going to do it. All of a sudden, you're going to do it. And, I just, and just like, they're going to kill me. I'm going to die publicly on a Broadway stage. They're going to kill me. Uh, and I had a, a brilliant, thank God, a friend had led me to a, a, a brilliant shrink. He's actually got a, sh a movie about him on Netflix called Stutz. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it to everybody. It's truly brilliant. S-T-U-T-Z. He's a brilliant mind, way ahead of its time. Doesn't use, um, it's, this sounds real fruit and nuts, but it's not. He, it's, he's actually, he's Queens Boulevard meets mysticism in a kind of way. But, I mean, he does believe, like, the universe is mystically constructed. So what he said, but he's, he's also the guy who says, hey, is Blimpy still on 79th? <laughs> we used to go to Blimpy's every day. Anyway, uh, I'm going to make a lot of money off of you. What were you talking about? Anyway, he, he was... Stutz was great, is, is great. He's still around. Uh, but I was already hip deep into therapy with him. And I called him. I, I just said, look, I got this offer, and um, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I'm not so sure that it's fear. 
you know, I gave him all the other rules. He goes, well, I can't tell you what you're feeling, but based on my knowledge of you, I, I, I think it's fear, but let's talk a little bit about fear. And, and he basically, I walked out of there realizing that I, I was empowered. He, he just said, um, you know, if you think anyone who's done this or any other play or anything great, this is a watershed moment. Now you can avoid, and I will support you pushing a watershed moment away, but this is watershed moments tend to be fate and uh, your destiny uh, is what you do with that fate. I think I'm using the two words correctly, but I might've inverted them. It doesn't matter. The idea being something happens. There are certain moments, you know, when they happen, you meet somebody, somebody passes away, a pet, a love, or there's an event. And this was clearly I mean, this play runs like a lightning strike through my family. Uh, so I knew that it was big, and I just thought, I've got a million excuses in the world, but he's right. This is about fear. So how do I manage this fear? Because I, I didn't, I don't drink. I don't, uh, you know, which is not what I, what I was telling a good way historically. I've discovered not to handle fear. Uh, he said, yeah, there's no pill. There's no... You know what there is? There's fear. And the only thing that will save you is absolutely, because this is such good fortune, the only thing that will save you is stripping this magical-seeming thing. You've loved this show since you were a boy. You already know it. It's fallen and it's come to you. And everybody in the world was auditioning for this, like stars. And, And she's chosen you. And you almost can't wrap your mind around it, nor should you. In a weird way, it's none of your business. The only thing that you need to concentrate is what we've been working on. And Phil's whole, Stutz's whole thing, this is why I encourage anybody watch the movie. And then if you, if, if it interests you, buy the books. He has this thing called the tools and all they are, are little, mo- it's something you use every day in life, little visualization cues that you sort of rehearse for a, a larger moment that comes. You have to confront somebody. You have to demand what you're worth to a boss. You have a moment with yourself where you're like, I got to call myself and not working hard enough. Um, he's got tools that address all of these things. And if you practice them throughout the day and they're simple, but they require you to sort of summon up an emo- a, the feeling of an emotion, use the tool and then feel that feeling disintegrate. By the time those moments come, you've rehearsed for them. He was basically advocating rehearse for the big moment so they don't topple you and and i didn't even put two and two together i'd been working on these tools to you know it's it as hard as you work on them as hard that's how much they'll help you and so i, I my default position has always been laziness so i really uh, you know if i was hurt if i'd had a breakup i work on the tools really hard get past the breakup you know and now i'm on to creating my next spectacular failure of the woman this was huge. He said, if you do this right, this will change your life. And your this is your moment for to apply these tools. If they don't work, you should fire me and sue me for back pay. Um, but the only, if you say yes, um, I, I had three months until I started. 
a rehearsal in New York. So that that was it was in a weird way. It was almost agonizing because I had three months to just like wake up like this every morning. And if I fell asleep, like, <laughs> uh, um, he said, uh, preparation and tools, you know, use these tools, but over and over and over again. And don't even pay attention to whether you think it's stupid or it's going to all add up to something, because the only thing that will save you once you get to New York is preparation and working hard. That's the only thing. There's nothing. There's no tool. There's no pill. There's nothing else. The tools can get you into a state where you work hard. But at the end of the day, you'll be surrounded by Broadway dancers who get everything the first time. And they did. They assigned me the beautiful Tara Alonzo, whose job it was when Susan said, that's a five. She'd grab me and go, not for you, pal. Let's go. And she'd take me into the corner and we work on the steps. And by God doing that and then making myself run over the every step 15 times when I got home despite you know in the first week I was crying waking up just going what have I done I gotta get out of this and really thinking I might leave even worse get fired should leave before I get fired um that day never came I just settled into what we were doing and you know you get a month of previews which go by really really fast but you get to gauge an audience by the time we opened i could not wait for that curtain to go up let's do it i just wanted to share what the hell we had and the stuff i was going through at the time like i had twisted my ankle and literally couldn't walk and i told her and she said well all the you know i'm not going to tell you what reviewers and when they come but this is that week i i recommend you don't miss this show I said, I literally can't walk. And uh, someone from the chorus came out. I'll never forget this. Opened their palm and there were six Advil. And he went, welcome to Broadway. <laughs> I took the six Advil, 20 minutes. I I did the show. And uh, um, I still look back on that year. I, and I have very vivid memories. It was very important to me because I was 36. I wasn't 26. And I had made this breakthrough very much. I mean, that I, it's impossible for me to separate doing the music man from this breakthrough that I had personally. Uh, and I've lived my life far from perfectly and according to what it is that I've learned. But that was also part of it. You slip out of, you slip off the track, you get back on the track. You know, thank God for me, it's never been substances. It's usually just my own lazy behavior. You know, uh, of, of preferring somebody hand me a ticket rather than doing the work it takes to accumulate your right to be begged for a ticket. You know, um, that's that's the thing that I I'm constantly battling with in my head, and I'm doing that substructure that usually precedes a disaster. Uh, and I look back at um, the Music Man as. I, I don't have the objectivity to say it was perfect. I have the objectivity to say that the entrance of Susan Stroman into my life as sort of a twin um, power source to this guy Stutz, who she articulated as a director everything that he was pushing on me personally. I have to say it was um, it made every other experience in my life feel not divine like it was more special than anybody else's, but within the context of my own life, I could begin to feel what other people might call God or a higher power, that this structure 
that Phil always referred to, that Stutz always refers to. There's a, there, the universe is structured. It's just none of your fucking business because you probably couldn't understand it. The same reason we don't try to teach our dogs how to drive, God or whatever is happening out there, doesn't need us to know what we're singing hymns about. We couldn't handle it. We're just morons. He's training. You know, we're being trained for something else. Right. And I figure that's good enough for me. That's good enough for me. Because I, I, I think, you know, Vishnu, Jesus, Muhammad, they, the, all of them, all the Osmonds could come down from the sky in a half an hour, say, here's what it's really all about. And I would, my mind would be distracted. I'd be like, what did he say? But, well, I, I, I wasn't listening. It doesn't matter. I, I wouldn't, I know that whatever it is would be far too complicated. I'm just, a, I'm at my best when somebody hands me a task. And the joke is I learned around the music man. Most of the time you earn the right to have somebody hand you a task. It's the actor's job to assign him or herself tasks and keep himself honest. And I work on that every day. Every day I'm still at it. I'm, it humbles me to no end. I humbled just this week because I was like, oh, I got off the rail. I got to get back on the rail. Just, it's a constant, ceaseless effort. And so the music man, uh, whereas I think if it had happened a couple of years earlier, if I hadn't met somebody like Phil, uh, it would have been, first of all, I don't know. I can't sit, imagine having survived the experience. No way without these fundamental principles in place, because uh, as ridiculous as I thought big time Broadway might be, it was even more ridiculous. And as, as, as dark as things could get with certain personalities, it got far more dark. And I just had this and do have this when I'm in form, um, in good form, I have this uh, protection of just, it doesn't make me invulnerable. So I'll get hit by a taxi while I'm talking to you about how great this is. But I, it, it's uh, from the, the stuff that usually gives us agita, which is what other people think of us, how we're treated by others. It, it's it's far more easy for me to uh, solve. Hurts just as much, but it's but it's easier for me to just sort of step out of anything I'm feeling and go, my feelings have nothing to do with this. This, I know this much about the way things work. And it's just very simple math, you know, do this, do this every day, be a good boy, practice, practice, and you'll be able to dance. And damn it. If people didn't think I could dance. And I'm telling you, if you go see the transformers, like go see transformers, dark side of the moon, any of those robots would have had an easier time learning the dances. <laughs> Than I would. They would have looked smoother, but I just none of them would have worked harder. And I got there, and people thought I danced, and I don't dance. I got to ask you. It sounds like such a good experience. I want, I want to ask you about another role that I like you about. And and uh, Stephen Weber had brought you up when I interviewed him about sour grapes. Tell me about that because that just looks like. Remind me, Stephen Weber. He's some guy. I, I don't know. You might know him. I think he was in a show called Wings. Guy. A guy. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, so her whole thing is working. Good for her. Um, how is sour? How is it working with Larry David? That's just so. And that was a great movie that not enough people watched. Thank you for saying it's a great movie. I, I, I never judge anything that I see, and I rarely see anything that I do. 
uh, unless I'm trying to mark something or grow in some area. But um, so I haven't seen that for a long time. I recently saw one scene and I remember working and this is pretty illustrative of what it was like working with Larry David, which, by the way, if whatever myth there is that he's anything like the character on Curb Your Enthusiasm, he's not. He is, um, you know, I don't know him as well as other people do, but I feel like I got to know him as well as, you know, anybody who's working around the director for three or four months. And, um, and, and while I was out there in Los Angeles, had a bit of a friendship. We'd go out to lunch and just laugh. And um, he never lost his laugh, ever. If you did something funny... You and, and I heard that about Jack Benny too. That one of the reasons it's that he was absolutely beloved, and I did always hear the story that if you said something funny, he would fall to the ground and start pounding the floor. And it didn't matter who you were; he just loved to laugh. And he's he had been doing it for so long that he didn't need the. But you're Jack Benny. He didn't need any of that. And I think he also. Uh, it's a sign of greatness that he gave so much of the Jack Benny program to other players. A lot of the other characters would get the, they'd actually get the laughs. Um, and someone asked him about that. And he said, well, first of all, from a sense of business, everybody's going to be talking about the Jack Benny program tomorrow. You know, so this only helps me, but also I just, I just like funny. You know, I like what's funny. If it works, it goes in. And if it's if and I know my character, which is this cheap, conniving, you know, uh, ridiculously cheap, but doesn't understand why everybody else doesn't think he's generous kind of character, like his blind spot. The, my job is to play that. And I also know after years of cultivating this character, which lines I should be mine and which lines will set my character something, you know, because. My character's so well set up that all I have to do is look at the camera. I'm talking about him in the first person like anybody has a right to. But I feel like, I mean, I watched him growing up and I just had his number through through my grandmother, I think. I used to watch how she laughed. If she laughed at something, I knew it was funny. It's only a matter of time. And so Jack Benny, Tim Conway, Carol O'Connor, these were people who could reduce my grandmother to tears and all of them. Had, it was all behavior. It wasn't funny lines. It was behavior. And that's what made my grandmother laugh. And this was a woman who literally had, you know, used to talk about, she'd see a Nazi on television and go, those bastards. Because she actually saw a Nazi kick down her door. Like, actual visual, visually saw a Nazi. Uh, so she knew what real ugliness and terror was. And, um, and I think these people are a little bit ahead. If something makes them laugh, it, they have my attention. And uh, she was infallible in that way. My brother and I always laughed at the same thing. Uh, we, it's funny, we were two years apart. So he, he was the guy next door, basically, until he graduated college. And then we, could, we got to know each other. I'm the guy next door. How are you? Good to see you. <laughs> But the way we bonded growing up, we had so many differences. And I love my brother. Now, I always did. But the way we bonded when we were kids is I, we were watching the same show on our TVs. And you could hear the laughter through the walls. And it, I, used to, I used to go, that's how we're hugging right now. And now we hug. But uh, uh, there was so much that came through... Um, 
humor. Uh, when I in working with Larry to get back to your your question, I recently did an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So it's been twenty years since um, since uh, Sour Grapes, and I, I think that's that's all I'm allowed to say. We actually got a, a letter, not to I, I don't even know that I'm allowed to say it, but I do I do I do wander in and out uh, of the show, and I can tell you even more than I more than I expected. He's still that guy. You say something funny and you drop him. He just will fall right out of frame. And it was delightful. I I, I, I just I'm it's it's hard to look at somebody who has so much more than anybody else wealth wise and go, God, I, I would give them more if I could. With the amount that that guy has made me people I know laugh when I'm in no mood for laughing. You know, the people who can do that to me. I, I, you know, and he's one of them. I, I can't speak highly enough about him and I, the way he treats people uh, that, and a lot of people I think don't, aren't aware of it, but uh, he's, I think he's a good person. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think comedy comes from an especially pleasant place. So I would assume that his genius didn't just fall out of the sky through his skull. I assume it came from a, a, a certain amount of, you know, a torment, which he made sense of by the time, you know, that whole comedy thing came along. And I don't know. Thank God for him. Thank God for, for thank God for all comics. Anybody who's brave enough to do that. I they have had my undying thanks and respect. Wendy Liebman, same person. I, to watch her is to feel better. Wendy, and, um, Wendy was funny. Wendy did my show the first time when I, it was when I lived in L.A. And I was, like you, a huge fan. I mean, I, I did stand-up comedy for eight years on the road, and you would always see Wendy. So I'm, I'm, it was like, oh, my God, she could write a joke. And I remember I was nervous. Yes. And she was coming. It was a studio in Burbank I recorded it at. And Wendy comes walking in, and my other guest canceled. And she goes, "Can I, I'll do the next hour. And I was like, holy crap. I had two one-hour shows with Wendy. And, uh, yeah, and, and she was just, she was just uh, an amazing comic. And it's funny because your mom, your Mom played the drums, the, the trumpet, you said. Her, well, I, when I, I didn't play, but actually blew air well, through it and made a sound. Because Wendy's but, mom plays yeah. the drums. And on her last Ace Showtime oh. special, Wendy's mom does a drum solo in it. So there oh, you go. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> a mother playing drums is funny. Um, yeah, that's that's great. I, I don't doubt it. I, it yeah. Her, and I love the fact that our parents went to school together at the camp. That's crazy. My, my mother, I just, just because I like to say it and it's so strange hearing somebody like Wendy Liebman, who you used to watch Merv Griffin in real life, come out and go, because my mother's nickname growing up was punky and her last name was distillator. So punky distillator was something people said. <laughs> uh, and she, she just, Wendy Liebman's face came and go, punky distillator. <laughs> It's like it's it's like a, a Beetlejuice thing. It's something you don't see. You either want to say it three times really fast, or you don't. Now, I, I want to ask you because you you've had a very good career. You've been acting a lot. When a lot of people are talking now, and you've done theater and you've done it all, what is your take on auditioning? Do you miss going into the room if you have to audition? Do you like self tape? Because I'm, I'm getting a lot of different things from different actors. Some. Miss the room so much. Some love the self tape. 
what what do you prefer? Well, I I intimated that the Music Man runs through my family like a, a streak of lightning, and it does. My my father was the last of a dying breed. He was a traveling salesman, very very good, very talented uh, traveling salesman, uh, and ultimately set up shop. So he was you know salesman who stays still, I guess you call them, doesn't travel. But um, it really was the end of an era. My brother Scott uh, played Harold Hill. In the fifth grade night of music, so I was two years younger. I was in the third grade. My father helped build the sets. Um, I remember Scott wore Mrs. Corwin's red jacket with the white piping and a McGovern hat. You know, like a uh, straw hat with the McGovern sign taken off because we were McGovern people. Um, And they did the whole damn play. He did the whole thing in the fifth grade. Uh... Uh, I want to get back to your question. I'm forgetting what it was because I have such a windbag. What was the lead me back to what you were saying? Auditioning. Do you like being in a room? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. So uh, the reason I mentioned my father, not to go back into the whole music man thing, but my father was a salesman. And I thought, boy, there's one thing I don't want to do is be a salesman, even though I recognize he's great at it. And I've heard from other salesmen. He was was one of a kind. He he had a genius for it. I thought, well, at least I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go do this other thing. I'll cut my own path. So when auditioning stopped, I realized that's what I miss. I miss walking into a room and selling because that's what I do. I am my father's son, and it turns out my mother's son because they got divorced, and my mom had to make a career for herself. These were the days of Betty Crocker. So she had this winning personality, and she sold time for like a, a conference centers around the world became very successful because that's what we have in our blood. So I realized so much of what I had created for myself in my career was I can walk into a room as I had been anyway and feel the temperature. And then I can certainly make three guys on a couch believe that what they wrote was actually funny, which a lot of the times, you know, to be perfectly honest is what you spend a lot of time doing or at, 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 during a certain era where sitcoms, everybody was doing sitcoms or kinds of pilots, very few of them were funny, but they all had laugh tracks that would make you think they were the funniest thing that anybody's ever written. And a, a lot of time I realized that my job was to go in and not just sell myself as the guy for your this role, uh, but also I can justify that laugh track. That was what I felt a lot of us who were working a lot in sitcoms, we were very, very, very good justifying a laugh track so that nobody in America stood up and going, wait a minute. That wasn't funny. Like, you know, in their mind, maybe they did, but uh, there was so much, so much crap. There was great stuff. And you, of course you have high hopes for anything that you do, but ultimately, you know, 22 episodes a year. That's a lot. Uh, I heard one producer quite famous, I won't say his name, but say, yeah, out of 22, if you get eight good ones, <laughs> that's a good average. I'm like, so it's just the money. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And and now look at what now look at the paradigm. I mean, as things have shifted, a series on Netflix is about six to eight episodes long. British television, which I always thought the best of was far superior to our own. Uh Eight episodes, Faulty Towers. They don't need them to write 22. They're not going to be as good. How about we get eight really great ones or six really great ones? 
Um, and it will feel like 22 because you've laughed the third time you've watched them. Uh, we were at that point, uh, these were the kinds of things I loved talking about with peers because you were never going to be able to talk about them with the powers that be. And you finally had to realize, no, all anybody's interested in any corporation is making money and they can talk to you about, no, this show is special to us because no, 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 no. You're working for a corporation. The minute you're selling something comes back to sales. Uh, and I had to admit to myself, I am in sales. And when I say, you know, the music man runs through my family like like lightning, all the all the shadow, but also all the light that that infers. Uh, it's wonderful to be able to sell somebody an idea. If you've got something worth selling, it's so great to be able to communicate that idea. And I have always believed in myself as as an actor. Don't feel that anything came especially easy to me. Um, um, and I always knew the wheel goes around, you know, constantly. Like, it never felt like, oh, a very successful actor. It always felt like, you know, where's the next cliff? Like anybody else. And where's to climb and to, you know, accidentally fall off of. You're You're being so careful and trying to make the correct decisions it's impossible to do um and the things that were worth being afraid of um they they came on more slowly like the actor's lifestyle the quote-unquote actor's lifestyle that came on really slowly so to get back to auditioning i this the enemy is the actor's lifestyle which is any kind of lazy thinking, the business owes me, the blah, blah, blah. No, this you're part of a business, and, and the business will adjust and readjust to how much money they're vacuuming in. The end. And you can set it to any musical. You can have anybody direct it. You can have both Toms starring in it. It's still a business that makes money. And that was proven to me this year in no uncertain terms because – I'm really disappointed uh, in uh, the SAG union. I don't want to make too much of a point to this and make it about this, but the union should exist to protect the seller and the person being sold to and the people work under them. You know, it's, it's good for everybody. And our union, the SAG union, charges a hefty fee. And we have excellent coverage. We have... Um, uh, and for reasons that I just assumed, had excellent representation. But that depends on who's running things. Uh, I I have to say I'm not as familiar with the politics. I've never wanted to be involved in acting politics. It's exactly what I've been running from and why I chose to be an actor. But there are times where you have to be political after nine 11, you couldn't be an American and not be political. If you were older than seven, it's going to affect your life. You had to have an opinion about what you just saw and what we are, what we saw then I believe was a sea change. Um, it has nothing to do with supporting or not supporting our troops. It has to do with that happened and it could happen again. Now you've seen it. So what are we going to do? How are we going to work together to try and make the, you know, I don't know what kind of grade we have. Time will tell. But in terms of acting and what's happening with auditions, there has been a sea change. 
this pandemic happened and because there was a global emergency every actor who just wants to work said oh okay at least we're auditioning i'll take myself on a phone and i'll talk to the wall or i'll call a friend or whatever because it's a global emergency and that went on for three years and some people you know there were a couple of productions that coasted all the way through but there were few and far between and then slowly as work started coming back after three years um which had um Caved in the careers of plenty of actors who had to start all over again financially or who left or who died. Um, this was a big sea change. Uh, and my opinion of it is not is, is that it's not a good thing. Auditioning on a telephone is not a good thing. But it doesn't matter what my opinion of it is. Uh, and the only disappointment I've experienced is the is that I think it it's probably worth fighting for to get back in the room. But acting isn't like other, you know, dancing requires you can't dance on Zoom. You can't partner on Zoom. Arguably, you can't really do much more than this on Zoom, although I've seen some pretty good theater on Zoom. I've I, I understand you can pretend to copulate. You can basically pretend to do anything. But you can't uh, get a feeling. Sitting with you at lunch, I would know you much better than I know you now, and vice versa. I am whatever it is I'm saying or whatever impression you're getting from what's behind me, whatever the hell my hair is doing, which I should always preface with an apology. I have no idea. Uh, I'm really disappointed that the union... I don't know that they would have won this fight because at the end of the day, everything's up to the producers. They have far more money so that when there's a writer strike or an actor strike, it's kind of cute to them and things will stop. I don't, I think it's, it's a little less than cute, but they do know that they're going to win and they'll probably have to, you know, shave off a section of a zero here and there and give us a sense of what it is we've been fighting for an actor or a writer. But at the end of the day, these people are very well money. They have deep, deep, deep war chests, you know, that have subterranean rivers being fed by other businesses. Actors pretend for a living, wear dead people's hair and costumes, and writers, you know, uh, have their heads together a little bit more, but they do a very specific and backbreaking kind of work. And to advocate for the money that we deserve. Well, that's a noble thing to go on strike, even though, you know, OK, maybe we'll get a quarter of what we're asking for, which is what usually happens. We run out of money in our war chest. Our unions support each other so we can even lend each other money. But it's only a matter of time until the producers win. I hear there's going to be another writer strike. I hope it doesn't happen. It's not necessary to see this exercise run itself through. But if it's going to if it's going to help writers and their families secure a better future for themselves, I'll stand by them as long as I can. I, I support that. I think that's what unions are for. But it should be the union on behalf of who they're representing. It's very hard doing what we do. And we elect more often than not people who do what we do to lead these organizations, which is why as we have an actor who's leading our organization and um, she should know damn well that it's – she does know 
that this this machine doesn't work well for the actor. And what has happened is, um, I, this is what I believe, the reason, you know, because there's no medical emergency. There's no reason why people can't go, you know. I think producers during the pandemic, and I don't blame them, realized we can see 60 people and drive over Barham or into Midtown and then drive back over Barham and back through Midtown rush hour. Or we can see 600 people and just look at the videotape and push fast forward if we don't want to. And uh, that's not going to change. I've been told that's it. It's not going to change. Heartbreaking thing to hear because I really did hope I can't wait to get back into a room so I can, you know, an actor, I think of a certain caliber, you, you realize I've already got this might be because of information you've received beforehand. Like you're, you're walking into a good situation. You're far enough in your career. I haven't revealed myself to be a crazy person. Now I got to do a competent reading. That's all gone. What you get is whatever you're looking at right now, uh, two minute long scenes, two minute long scenes, or they're really crazy. And they give you these five minute scenes and you have to memorize and you're doing them in your living room. And, um, they're not actually seeing what it is that you can do. You kind of feel terrible when you send it in. This whole myth about, well, I get to do it as much as I want. The actor's usually not the best judge of their own work. Usually your first pop at an audition, if it didn't get, if it's not enough to you know, get their interest, you probably didn't have the greatest audition. Uh, we're not auditioning anymore. The paradigm has changed. And the reason I get upset at the union and frustrated with the union is that they didn't put up a fight. Instead, I went to exactly one meeting. It was online. And I thought they were going to say, here's what we're doing to get you guys back in the room. They said, we're never going back in the room. So let's talk about how we can make the most effective tapes that we can. And I just turned the damn thing off because it was it. Anything short of the two Toms, I keep referring to Hollywood as the two Toms. The two Toms that don't have to audition and will never have to audition for anything ever again. Anything short of the two Toms and the whole coterie of people who are part of the two Tom family. Big actors who don't have to audition. Anything short of them stepping forward, going to the union saying, we need producers to let actors back in the room again. And until you do, no Mission Impossible 25. Nothing. Nothing. We're going to wait it out with our brothers and sisters. That's what a union should inspire people to do so that the people who don't have to worry about making medical insurance. I didn't have I didn't have enough for medical insurance like like seven years ago. I just hadn't worked. and I, I hadn't realized it. I was so involved in my I was happy, but I hadn't worked. So I had to go to Malta and do this crappy movie just so I could get medical insurance. And then once during you know the three year period, there was a gap in work. I was like. They're coming after me, and I wasn't covered. If something catastrophic had happened, I would have been wiped out. And by the way, the pandemic has seen to it anyway. I'm, I'm not wiped out, but I'm not in the place I was at the beginning of the pandemic by a long stretch. And I come into it as an older guy in a different age group and a union that leaves messages on its own Instagram going, we're thinking of you. <laughs> you know what, Craig, that, that, that our hour's up. I usually talk an hour. I, I want you to come back and talk more about your career. Will you come back? I'm sorry. I really, I really do go on. No. Well, you, will, will you come you back? Get me with that. Weeks? 
Oh, I would love. I would love to. I'd love to because I'll, I'll go another one you can cut up and use again. But I, because it really is disappointing that the second I think I just want to get in there really fast about the union is I I read about what is happening with uh, Shannon Doherty. I saw your tweet. Uh, I saw your tweet. It's, it's awful. It's awful what's happening with her. She she's uh, been working longer than most movie stars most established movie stars today. She's been working longer, pumping money into that organization, and she has stage four cancer, and they're not taking care of her and paying her bills. Her, she has no insurance. Well, it's... Then I don't understand how unions aren't just an adjunct to the business itself or a separate business itself. Because as long as anybody is buying anything for pleasure with money that I'm paying into a system that I want designated because that's me. But it's also another human being who has dedicated her life to what I dedicated her life to and what our union is supposed to be protecting. Yeah, that it doesn't even piss me off. It's such a grave disappointment and um, eventually worth standing up for. Uh, if they don't, hopefully there's been enough backlash that either the administration will change um, uh, or, you know, we'll have a fight on our hands about something that's worth fighting about. Well, I want to thank you, Craig. Uh, how people get in touch with you? How can people get in touch with you? I know you tweet, you don't tweet well, as much all, as you used to. You used to tweet a lot. You don't. Well, I, I find, yeah, well, I find oh, Twitter's, you know, Twitter's change, right? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm whatever, I don't have any opinion of Elon Musk. I just know that, uh, Whatever it is I'm doing or whatever I'm saying, I'm out beyond the barricades, man. I can't get – I don't see any of the names that have become familiar to me. I've been tweeting and really enjoying it for more than a decade. Pretty good at it. Been dry, you know, been pretty much the same number, but an acceptable, nice, modest number of followers. And I think of it as, yes, it's a billboard for my business, but also I really like interacting with people. I Because of my – who I am, I guess, maybe politically or whatever, whatever it is that's happening number wise beneath the surface. I'm out beyond the perimeter. I'm out in the land where pharaohs died. You know, I'm just like I can't reach anybody. So I'm I'm amazed that anybody sees anything I tweet. Uh, but, yes, you can follow me for the time being at Mr. Craig Bierko and then maybe even include a reason why I should stay on Twitter because, man, I, I'm so close to leaving that place. I'm also Mr. Craig Bierko at Instagram, where I spend more time. You can follow me at Craig Bierko on um, on Facebook. Uh, I'm not I'm not verified there, but you'll know it's you'll know it's me. I have a leather jacket, really short hair, um, and uh, and I also have Craig Bierko adjacent. If sometimes that fills up, so I have Craig Bierko adjacent. I just share the material because uh, they limit followers. And um, I wanted to give you one thing. I can actually give it to you afterwards, but I did want to say a word about the, the group that I advocate for is uh, the Loma Linda University Children's Hospital. Um, and uh, my dog, Boo, and I, who she just passed in May. That's been really, really hard. But she and I, we used to make these silly little videos, and then there'd be a thing at the end about how you could donate 10 bucks to Loma Linda Children's Hospital. They're such special people. Um, they... These are the people who, um, you know, that the boy with the baby and the baboon heart. And that, well, this was the doctor who put the baboon heart like he actually uh, performed 
that that hospital performed the first uh, infant heart transplant, and they've developed long ago the first infant artificial heart. So I backed them because I went to visit the hospital just as a photo op, and I left there. That was a sea change moment, and I left there going, "I got it's too late for med school." Thank God for everybody who would have a problem and get me, but but it, but I but I can certainly pimp my friends for money because. Their whole thing is we will never turn away any child in need. And it doesn't matter how many millions they make every year at their fundraiser. That they need an infusion of money to keep a promise like that alive. So I work for that. And uh, I can put the address if you've got a uh, – or something that you can put up when you air this. I'll give it to you afterwards. I will, yeah. You can put under here. Definitely. Go like that. Send me that. Uh, or on your webpage or something like that. Where, where people can just send, and if you got five bucks, it's worth it. Send it to them. They're so good, and uh, it means a lot to me. Well, and in the memory of my dog, Boo, who I miss horribly. I want to thank you for coming on. People, go check out Craig. I'll put that up when I post the episode. I'll put that uh, link and donate to him. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.